I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of The Future of Storytelling, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the FOSS podcast. After two years of being pent up due to the pandemic, I was starved for immersive adventures. So, and perhaps somewhat ironically, when I got to San Francisco a few weeks ago, I decided to get locked inside a room at Palace Games with some of my FOSS friends. After successfully escaping the room, founder Christopher Alden gave us a behind-the-scenes tour. I couldn't believe how much technology was operating hidden beneath the surface. It was super impressive and made the room feel responsive, almost alive. I wanted to invite Chris onto the podcast to give you all a glimpse of the wizard behind the curtain. Chris Alden founded Palace Games in 2015 before he had ever done an escape room himself. Since then, his company has gone on to win more than 10 awards, including being ranked the fifth best escape room company in the world in 2021. It's my great pleasure to welcome Chris Alden onto the FOSS podcast. Chris, it's so delightful to have you on the FOSS podcast. Welcome. Hi, Charlie. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored. So I wanted to start by asking you, where did your love of escape rooms come from? What was your first inspiration and, and experience? It's funny because it's something that I had to look back on my life when I was in one of these sort of job transitions, you know, where you think about what you're going to do next in your career and I realized after a 20-year career that I'd never asked myself, as part of that, what do I really enjoy? And I went back, I went on a bike ride, and I started to think about what was I passionate about in my life? And I started to trace back how much I'd always loved games. I'd always loved making games, making mazes, inventing things. That's when it occurred to me that, geez, if I'm going to start something, do something that I'm really passionate about. And that's where the passion came from. It came from a desire to make games more so than actually playing the games, if you will. You enjoyed making games as a kid? As a kid. I was always making mazes, puzzles, things along those lines. And the truth is that I hadn't actually played escape rooms before I built this escape room. I maybe had played one or two, but I, but I actually made the decision to start an escape room before I'd ever played one. And so this business now of escape rooms really evolved to just play into the childhood enthusiasm or passion you had for games. Do you think that's why many people come to escape rooms? When I actually first contemplated designing escape rooms, I talked with someone who had done an escape room. This was early on. This would have been 2014. And he had done a mobile escape room as part of a promotion for a movie. And he had said to me, I'd never experienced anything where almost universally everyone who played it liked it. It was broadly applicable. And if you think about our rooms, we have 13-year-old birthday parties and 60-year-old birthday parties. We've had, you know, Academy Award-winning actresses and uh, Nobel Prize-winning scientists. We've had just a huge range of people runs the gamut. And so there's something really universally appealing about an escape room. We had the pleasure of recently playing the attraction, one of your rooms, the most recent room, and a very disparate group of people in the room. And everybody pulled together, became a team. We sort of brought everyone's best strengths. You know, certain people are good at certain types of puzzles and others at other things. And I don't think, 
I honestly don't think any of us alone would have been able to do it, but all of us together were sort of somehow the sum was greater than the the parts, and you left with that incredible sense of accomplishment, like team success. And I certainly think that's a that's a big, huge part of the draw, right? We miss that sense of being on a team with people today. I think that's right. You're going to have four to eight people in the room. They're all going to be different. They may be different ages. They may have different areas of strengths and weaknesses. Some of them may be extroverts. Some of them may be introverts. Some of them uh, may have been dragged there by, you know, <laughs> you may have a teenager who's, uh, who's sulking. How do you engage a group like that together and keep their attention for, in our case, usually 90 minutes or more and tap into all their strengths and weaknesses? That is a lot of what we think about in the, in the design of the room. Tell us about what is a classic escape room. I mean, what are the elements traditionally? Escape rooms really started out as computer games. There was these video games called escape room games. You'd click around and try to find keys. And then this group in Japan said, hey, I got a wacky idea. Let's create a physical version of that. And so the early escape rooms were really just puzzles you had to get out of the room uh, within a given period of time. Those can be a lot of fun for all the reasons we just talked about, that they're social, you have a shared you know, set of objectives. But over time, it's evolved pretty significantly. We've added different types of technology. So it's not just paper puzzles. You've got audio, you might have video, you'll have lighting, mechanical things that will happen. And then now you've seen a lot of folks trying to play around much more with story. Uh, the early escape rooms really just had a setup. You're in prison and you, you need to get out within an hour before they execute you or whatever it may be. And it's sort of interesting, the moniker escape room, I think a lot of us feel like it no longer fits in a certain way because it's not necessarily about escaping and, and certainly most of them aren't about a single room. But we think of it, it's less escape as in prison, more escape as vacation. You know, it's a, it's a way of, of getting away from the normal life and doing something interesting and fun. I think you're right. Escape room is a, is a misnomer. It's more now kind of story world that you're living in and getting to play a role in. And I wonder how important you think stories are to the evolution of of escape rooms or what we formerly known as the escape room. Well, what's interesting about the escape room industry is that the, I think there's a great diversity of creators and, and innovators that are doing a whole bunch of different types of, of rooms and experiences. And escape room experiences can be very kinetic and be very light on the story. And I think that is a wonderful direction for rooms to go. Some of our rooms uh, definitely lean more in that direction. So I hesitate to say, in general, this is where it all should go. But for us personally, we are interested in doing stories because we think that can be fun and engaging, that can really enhance to the sense of a mission and of a quest and to the profoundness and the artistry of the experience. And there's a real challenge, I think, in combining a story with the escape room experience because that core escape room experience is you have sort of escape room brain. It's that fight or flight mentality where you've got to rush, you've got to move, you've got to solve. And that brain is not really conducive to also picking up on storylines and narrative and plot and certainly themes. And trying to weave those together can be a real challenge. And that's a challenge that we took with the attraction, was to try to balance those two. Give them a sense of agency, that they're on a journey, but also try to develop themes and story plot lines throughout. I know that some of the 
more advanced games that are being developed in China. And, and apparently in China, this is a much bigger market than it is here. I, I read that the revenue from escape rooms in China is larger than that of movie theaters now. But some of the more cutting-edge ones there are incorporating, yes, puzzle solving, but some cosplay costumes where people will dress or be given an option to choose a character and a costume. It's social. A group of people are coming together. And in addition to multiple rooms and dramatic sets and lighting, there's also the inclusion of actors. I keep thinking that This is a form that's in the process of being invented and evolving, and it's moving towards something that's closer to or or some new ground that touches on immersive theater, video games, the kind of agency and, and quests that people might have in those, and then something like a movie, you know, where there's a narrative and characters. Would you agree? Is there is there kind of a new thing being invented around what was the classic escape room genre? It's not necessarily new from our point of view, which is to say that for years there have been escape rooms that have had a very much of a immersive theater component where you've got actors as a core component of the experience. Some of the best escape rooms in the country around the world have that. And we have not gone that direction in the sense that uh, we don't have paid actors that are integral to the story. We will, we will have a, a team that will help get people set up we don't ask the players to pretend there's something else. You know, our personal style is not to ask you to pretend that you aren't who you are. We're trying to create an experience that is transformative to you as you, the person uh, that, <laughs> that you are, versus imagine I'm, a, I'm an astronaut or I'm a prisoner or I'm a pirate. I want to create an experience that you don't have to pretend that you're, you're, you're something that you're not. Again, there's other uh, rooms that take a very different approach that you want to imagine you're something else and put on a costume and uh, a little bit more of a cosplay element. Um, and that's what I mean for the diversity. I think there's a lot of rooms that will try that direction. And there's, a, there's a lot of games that will stay away from that direction. So, Chris, tell us about the rooms that you've built at Palace Games. Well, we've been fortunate enough to be able to work inside the Palace of Fine Arts, which is this magnificent historic building that was built in 1915 for something called the Panama Pacific International Exposition. Over 20 million people came to that event, which is a big number for 1915. But Harry Houdini came, and Thomas Edison, and Alexander Graham Bell, and Henry Ford, and Charlie Chaplin, and Helen Keller, and Maria Montessori, and Teddy Roosevelt. So we first imagined, what if Harry Houdini, who was always building contraptions and devices to test his own skill of escaping, what if he instead decided to build a room to test the the courage and, and skill of eight of these brilliant innovators? What would that look like? So that's that's the, the background of the Houdini room is that set up. And then our Roosevelt room, we realized that Teddy Roosevelt was here in 1915, and what was on his mind, which is sort of interesting given what's going on in the world today, is that in 1915, you know, it was the second year of the First World War, but America was not in the war and was having started to have a debate as to whether they should or you know remain neutral or get actively involved. The Roosevelt escape room sort of deals with those themes and Roosevelt's desire to try to help the country prepare for war. We created the Edison room to, to imagine what room would Edison create to try to as a test to see who uh, among the fairgoers would have been worthy uh, of the secrets of his success. And that's the setup for the Edison room, which is a much more kinetic and physical and play-based room. And then 
we imagine that these secret plans that were found when they broke ground to build the, the Panama Pacific International Exposition, and those plans were the blueprints for a machine, and these innovators collaborated on building this machine and didn't know really what it was, so they called it the attraction. And they had a group play in 1915, but that group went into the machine and, and never came out. So they condemned it and shuttered it for all time until Palace Games came along and refurbished it and offered it as a fun experience to our guests. So that, that's the setup for our four rooms. Super fun. I've had the pleasure of doing two of them now. One of the things that I was really taken by, not only was there all of this history, but how physically interactive they were, how, how active and embodied they were. And it's certainly one of those things that we've talked about a number of times on this podcast, how important it is to have people be able to be physically engaged with their stories. And it's one of the reasons why I love escape rooms and have really enjoyed yours. How do you think about that in the design of your escape rooms? There's a lot of programming that goes into our rooms, and we try to make it not feel that way, that you don't feel like you're playing a video game, but there is a lot of sort of video game-like development. And one of the things I think that we are one of the pioneers in is that escape rooms used to work that there was a, a time limit, and you played the game, and when you, when you reach that time limit, you know, that was it. You want, 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 and you kind of walked out the room, and your experience ended. And I never liked excising the end of most people's experience. I think a great experience has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so when we try to figure out how do we, um, how do you do that? How do you give people a beginning, middle, and end when you have a fixed period of time? And not all teams are going to be able to do everything that they need to, to do to get to the end. So our solution to that is to have an adaptive gameplay where if a team needs a little more help, they can get a little more help. If they're struggling with a particular uh, puzzle or gameplay, it may be able to uh, adapt. If they are running behind, we may bypass certain uh, aspects of the game so that we know that they will be able to end in time. So from their point of view, they haven't missed anything. It's still a coherent experience, but they may not play every aspect of the room. So what you get for being a faster team is you get you know, more puzzles and more gameplay, but everyone gets a beginning, middle, and an end. Yeah, it's quite brilliant the way you do that because it's invisible for the player, right? You're just in there and all of a sudden you're solving things a little more quickly than you realized or you're sort of somehow getting some clues that you didn't realize were being fed to you and uh, and all of a sudden you're, you know, boom, we did it. We're out of this room and we're moving on. I just love that idea that the room is somehow responsive, that that this experience is interactive and and being adapted to the skill set and the energy level and the ability of the people in the room. The original storytellers back in the days of, of oral storytelling of a bard that was traveling from town to town, that person was responsive, would, would respond to the crowd in real time to a small group of people. But basically since the invention of the alphabet, all of our stories have been fixed <laughs> and, and on a rail. And now you're helping to create a new kind of gaming that is analog, but with, with invisible tech. And I just really think, again, it's next level. It's incredibly exciting. Where are you thinking about where, where this kind of responsive room could lead? 
uh, first of all, in the technology, I view what we do is sort of a video game plus, not a video game minus. In, in other words, mm -hmm. we're doing a lot more than what you'd need to do with a video game because there's still that core programming, but because of the inputs and the outputs, there's, there's a lot more elements that, that come into play. I should say that while a lot of the adaptiveness is built in the programming, a huge part of what we do is with the people. We have a phenomenal team of game managers. We call them GMs. They will be watching the team. The game will do a lot of the adaptive, but there's no substitute for also having a game manager watching the game and occasionally tweaking the uh, the interventions that that might happen because you ne really never know the system cannot always know whether if the team is slow because they're just taking their time but they're getting it or is the team slow because they're struggling and so part of what we're building is the tools to give the game managers ways of of sort of intervening in the game in ways that are natural that the players won't won't perceive as uh, as an intervention. He called this the future of storytelling. In a way, we're not storytelling. We are trying to have a story experience. Um, and so uh, we're not trying to tell a story as much as have people play a story and feel like they're in a story and give them a sense of agency. And by the way, I think that's one of the great things that puzzles and technologies can do is give people a sense that they're driving, that they have agency. They're the ones, the action is emanating from them, not something that they're viewing or that, that isn't imposed on them. You know, we use the word room, right? Escape room. But in reality, it's a, it's a world. You're mm -hmm. building worlds for people to play in. And we've had, we've had guests on the podcast, and we certainly devoted real time to thinking at FOST about the building out of story worlds. And what I think is happening here is that you're creating a world that is able to be somewhat responsive to the desires and skills of the players the heroes in, in this story. It's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by the work that you do because you are dealing with this every day. You are literally designing with analog and digital tools a way to let the players control the world. I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with the hero's journey this prototype, this archetype that you know some people say is basically the, the story that of uh, that every story is just comes down to this hero's journey. Joseph Campbell. Yeah, yeah Joseph Campbell. And we were very explicit uh, with the attraction at l mapping out the hero's journey. And you go past this threshold from the reality to, you know, the known to the unknown. Um, and you find a mentor and you have certain challenges along the way. And, and you enter and then there's an abyss. And, and then you come back from the abyss and you've learned a lesson and you have the journey home. So you, you map out that whole hero's journey, which is, I think, the archetype of many, many stories and many of our most beloved stories. If you go back in your mind and play in the attraction, you'll probably start to connect the dots of all the elements of the hero's journey that was in that experience. And it goes, it can go back from, you know, the Odyssey, it can go from, you know, the Divine Comedy and almost every popular movie and book. And very much the attraction is not only taking them on that experience, but in a meta way, we are referring to that experience and showing people that experience. You know, it's one of the interesting challenges when you think about the great books and the great movies and the great plays. There's all these themes and, and ideas that uh, can be profound. And again, it's really hard when you're going through an adventure to be thinking about that. And so we've tried to figure out ways that we can inject thematic ideas 
and yet still have people play. And we do that by just hitting them with theme point after theme point after theme point with the hope that in their, maybe just in their subconscious, they will absorb those themes and be able to ask themselves those interesting and profound questions. So when they come out of the experience, it isn't just fun and play, but it is at some point, you know, moving and maybe, maybe sticks with them longer than, um, than the experience itself. We had the benefit of after doing the attraction, you took us back and showed us this, what was really no bigger than a closet, the walk-in closet, and it was filled with wires and, and a monitor and a screen, and it almost looked like out of a television thing, like of what a crazy control room would look like, <laughs> um, right. like if it were a set for something. But in fact, it was, it was the control center for the experience from, for the rooms we'd just been through. Tell us what was going on there and what's going on in that room with all of those wires. I almost think of a uh, of an escape room, which is, again, rooms. I think of the sort of circulatory systems. You have to have a whole bunch of circulatory systems in, in a space. And what I mean by that is there's maybe uh, speaker wires and wires for data input and for lights. And it feels like it's just a room, but there's all these uh, systems in the wall. Every light, every switch, every sensor, uh, every sound, you know, has to come from somewhere. And so we develop that kind of uh, background. It all goes to a central place. Most of that is, is run using Arduinos, which is these beautiful boards that do phenomenal input-output control, can read any kind of switch or sensor that you can dream up of uh, almost, and then um, and also can power, again, lights and sounds and things like that. And then those uh, Arduinos connect to Raspberry Pis, which again are phenomenal supercomputers that cost $35. You pair a, a Pi with an Arduino, and then you network all those uh, Pis together and then create game logic on top of that. And so that's what's going on there. You've got software and Pis going to Arduinos, going to the wires and sensors that, that make all the stuff happen in the room. It was so great to realize, because again, when you're in the rooms, it's such an analog experience. You're, you're dealing with physical things, these cool sets that you've built and very analog, movable elements, but you just don't realize how much technology there really is behind the scenes. And I think that's one of the things that I've also always thought, which is that as we move forward, a lot of the technology that seems so um, clunky and prevalent in our lives, as it evolves, it gets smaller and it disappears. And it just gets kind of built into the environment. And I think, in a way, your escape rooms are a glimpse into the future, that there's, there's a way in which a lot of the interactivity will just be built into our living spaces or our entertainment spaces and enable them to be responsive and provide us with the kind of experiences that we're going to learn to expect. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. We live in this world, and many people lament it, that our attention and our focus has been so drawn to our devices. And, you know, the biggest thing that a lot of people are talking about is meta, which is an attempt to even, I think, in a way, more constrain what you've got. You've got to put these goggles on, and suddenly we're going to really t put more and more layers between you and so the so-called real world. And if you go back to what the origin of escape rooms are, it was an attempt to break out of that. It was an attempt to say, uh, there's this video game thing called an escape room. Can we bring it to the real world? So I think inherent in a lot of escape rooms is moving away from a narrowed focus on devices 
to uh, living in the real world, having real experiences, experiencing real joy, real fun, real collaboration and socialization with people. That has always been, you know, is why I was very adamant of let's let's start a a live game company, not a not a video game company. And I think that's what brings a lot of joy. So we definitely are trying to have the experience not feel like you're playing a video game or there's uh, or you're really focusing your devices. We we have people leave their phones outside the room and for I think a lot of people that's a two hour period that they're not with their phone that may be pretty rare for them over the course of a month. You mentioned something just now that made me that really resonated which was how important it is when you're a group of people playing through your rooms. Like we had all, that was the first escape room I'd done in two and a half years or three years. Um, for many of us, it was one of the first sort of social outings that we'd, any of us had done in a long time. And, and to realize how important communication was to work as a team to solve the puzzles and, and accomplish what we needed to accomplish, it was really a test to remind us of the need to be able to have a group of people very quickly figure out their their communication skills how they're going to who's going to do what how are we going to communicate solutions and then and then orchestrate actions and i think a lot of the technology we use these days does just the opposite it kind of undermines our communication skills as a, as groups also i don't think many would argue that the currency of the realm today is who can be the loudest and you know the most out there and you know you're trying to get attention right and what's really interesting and i've seen this you know many times in our rooms it's one of the reasons why i think we're used a lot for uh, uh, groups doing team building is you'll have a group dynamic and very often you'll have the extrovert who is out there who's loud who's talking everything and maybe barking orders and then you'll have the introvert who is a little bit quiet but much more observant and maybe has figured out the puzzle. And the introvert may say, well, I think we should do X. And the team may ignore the introvert because maybe that's their common mode is that they don't always listen to that person. And then they'll realize, oh, wait, X was the solution. And I've heard more than one teams afterwards said, you know what? Susie was right. We should have listened to her. And she didn't yell it the way, you know, John was yelling. And so we were listening to John. But maybe we should listen to Susie. And I like to think that a lot of times that carries through back into the workplace, that they come back to the workplace and say, you know what? Susie's actually quite clever. And even though she's not always maybe the first one to speak up at meetings, we got to listen to what she has to say. Um, and so there's definitely a fun dynamic that can occur in these rooms. With that said, all of these great advantages of the analog components, I know that during COVID, you guys switched to doing escape rooms digitally, and you were offering that as an online experience. How did that work out? You know, we got shuttered. So we were, we were closed for 15 months straight. But because we essentially were building video games, we had developers and game designers, we had no, no choice but to launch our uh, virtual strategy. And we've built four virtual escape rooms. But what's been a core component of that is that they're all team-based, social-based experiences. So uh, in order to play them, you need to be part of a team so that, you know, teams can who can't get together physically, but who can get together via Zoom or what have you. So we've had groups of 150 people break into teams and play and they can play against each other. So you have still a lot of those great competitive and collaborative and communicative elements of gameplay. And that's uh, our palace sphere, as we call it, the, uh, the virtual side of our business. 
Chris, tell me what makes, in your opinion, for just a really great experience for people in an escape room? There's so many aspects of it. Certainly, I think having a fun story or a setup or a framework, something that uh, feels interesting as part of it. Another aspect is, is, of course, the physical design. Having rooms that are beautiful and interesting and different is a big part of it. Giving people a sense of agency, of play through puzzles or different activities is important. And it's really important to get that right. Got to try to find a, a, an experience or a puzzle, if you will, or gameplay that is just enough to be challenging, uh, but not so much that you're lost. And then, of course, there's surprises and mystery, things that happen that are unexpected, that feel that really wow you and dazzle you. Um, and so we're always thinking about that. Is there something we can do that really just blow people's minds and that they, they won't expect? If we feel like we don't have that anchored in a room, then we won't do the room. So we, there's got to be something that really throws them for a loop in some way. All of those elements seem to come together into this beautiful symphony of lived experience, of, of lived play that people have. And I think that doing it at the level that you do it, it, it really starts to become a kind of art form. People wouldn't right now be, be describing escape rooms as a form of art, but then they didn't used to think about Shakespeare plays as a form of art or, or Broadway musicals as a form of art either when they first came. And now, of course, they're incredibly studied and revered. I think we're at that early stage where you and, and other designers who are building these kinds of immersive play worlds, instead of using the term escape rooms, um, are, really, are really forming a new, a new type of experiential art form. The word art is an infamously difficult uh, word to define, and, and you could spend hours on that. But from, from my point of view, uh, escape rooms probably did start as what you might call entertainment, that it was just something that was fun and thrilling, um, but, but not what you might call necessarily art. But I think there's no reason why we couldn't do both. And in fact, to me, an artistic experience can actually enhance the entertainment value of it, the fun, the play. If you create something that is beautiful, that is also moving in both sense of the word, you know, physically and emotionally, that it can be thought-provoking, uh, meaningful and creative. So I absolutely think those things can go hand in hand. And absolutely, I think, you know, all the escape rooms that I really respect, it is absolutely an art form. Well, I am so thankful for your passion for this form. I really think that it comes through in the experiences, in the rooms, that childlike wonder and passion for making games is palpable in the experience. So thank you for that, that passion and, and for those games and can't wait to come back and try some more. Well, thank you, Charlie. It was a real pleasure talking with you today. My sincere thanks to Chris Alden for joining me on today's show. You can learn more about Palace Games by visiting the link in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the FOSS podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Future of Storytelling. FOSS also produces a monthly newsletter filled with valuable information for storytellers of all kinds. You can subscribe for free by visiting the link in the episode's description or on our website at fost.org. 
The Foss Podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. I hope we'll see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. Thank you.